Okay, so in this episode, I'm talking to my friend Eddie, who's going to talk to us about what it's like doing a PhD in chemistry. Let me tell you the, the, the things, that, the very few things that I currently know or think that I currently know. So I know you did a PhD in chemistry and you did it at Oxford and that's all I know. That's correct. Yes, that's a good start. Okay, um, so... I guess my first question, the thing I really don't know is like, how do you actually get into doing a P like PhD? Because you'll you've you've done your degree in chemistry or something related that allows you to access, but like, how do you actually get into it? Um, so I got into it because in my undergrads, my fourth year was just entirely doing research. It was in a research group, so it was kind of like a mini PhD. So there weren't any lectures, none of that. You were just in a research group doing research like a PhD student would be. Is that but, like equivalent of doing like having an integrated master's? Because that's yeah. what Matt's on my hand. Okay. Yeah, yeah, it's an integrated master's. But in the chemistry, at least in most unis, in your fourth year, you'll also be doing lectures and exams. But we didn't. That was all in third year. And so in your third year, you apply for... We applied for research groups and I just put one of my tutors because he seemed cool. But then four years later, I realized that was a mistake. But um, yeah, I did my master's in that group. And then while I was doing it, kind of in about November, December time, so a few months in, thought, well, this seems like something I can do. I was doing it and applied for the PhD program. So you had to. I think it was quite easy for me to apply for something that I was already in the research group. Mm -hmm. I, I wouldn't know how you would went about applying to a different university because I didn't consider doing that. Yeah. So I just kind of filled that form and had to come up with a research proposal. So I spoke about the research I was doing at the moment, which was on electrochemistry and kind of computational um, modeling of electrochemical experiments and how they relate to electroanalysis and how you can detect um, certain species in solution and their concentrations and things. But it got way more complicated than that. So I wrote about that and why it's useful and ideas for the PhD project, which my supervisor had some input into. And he said, oh, well, I'm thinking about doing this, so write about that. That went off to the university, and then I think went to my supervisor who helped me write it, so that was helpful. And um, yeah, they said, sure, you can do that. And then, because it was obviously complicated, you then had to apply to a college, yeah. apply to the college I was already at. And they said yes. And then I had to apply for funding, which was a whole other thing. So I got it from the Engineering and Physical Science Research Council. And I can't remember if I had to do like a separate application or it went alongside the PhD one. But it was an extra thing, making sure you have the funding to pay the fees that the university charges and to give you like a stipend to live off as well. Okay, so just to kind of check that I've understood this correctly. So mm -hmm. you you were you were already kind of doing some research as part of your final year anyway. And the research group that you were in you wanted to continue that kind of research like yeah. into the phd so you already kind of knew some of the people there and were involved yeah is that 
quite like or at least from your experience is that quite a standard way of getting into it do a lot of people kind of stay in the same kind of thing that they finished their first degree in um lots of the people that I knew did so lots of people I didn't know that with most of the ones who did PhDs stayed in the same research group still Oxford so they might have been in an organic synthesis group and then they carried on stayed in that to do their PhD or an inorganic organometallic catalyst group thing and stayed in that research group for their PhD so the majority of people I know who carried on a PhD stayed where they were obviously when I started my PhD we had loads of new people who had come from various other unis all around the world as well Mm. so they joined my group joined other groups joined my college Um, I know a few people who work from other universities and they went off. Um, so I think they did a kind of lot of independent research on their own, looked at research groups, went to visit them, and then went through a lot of those universities' application procedures. Okay. So people I know in the same group. Okay, so it, from what it sounds like, it if you want to go somewhere else, it sounds like a lot more work than staying in the same place. Is that somewhat accurate? Yeah, I think so. I mean, that, I think that's the case with most most things in life is staying where you are, doing what you know is easier. Okay. Uh, that's only if you enjoy where you are. Lots of people wanted new new experiences, go somewhere else, join a new group, which is yeah, fine too, but harder. Yeah, I remember when I got to the end of university, I was just like, I need to get the hell out of here. Like, I've, I've been in this place wait, like for five years already. Like, this has been too long. But yeah, I can understand why you would definitely want to stay in the same place if it's like making the whole thing easier. So like getting into more like the actual applying side of it, was it a case of you went, I'm interested in this kind of thing? Or is it kind of you looked at what the university was doing research in and kind of like picked a thing that they were already doing? Um, I think it's you've got to pick a thing they're already doing in a way. But what it should be really is you, you're thinking, oh, I'm interested in this, I like this. I mean, you have to go off and find the research group that's doing it. Yeah. But, um, I mean, most bigger chemistry departments have huge ranges of research. So at Oxford, you would be able to find a research group doing basically whatever you wanted, okay. kind of closely related. So, yeah, it's you think what you're interested in and then go find a group that's doing that and apply. It might be the case that you find a group and then think, oh, that does sound really interesting, and do it that way around. But I suppose it varies person to person, like just seeing what catches your eye, and if that relates to what you've been doing, and what you're interested in, and what you want to carry on doing. Yeah. So, like, I guess it would be the case that the different universities would have research groups in, like, different things. So I guess if you are considering doing a PhD, it would be something to actually check where you're applying to, actually does research in the area that you're interested in because yeah i assume yeah. they don't all do that <laughs> true well i mean at the point where you're applying for a phd you're not you don't have that much of an insight into kind of the nuances of different research areas so i was like okay i want to do electrochemistry but i didn't know a huge amount about electrochemistry so i'm um, you could join the electrochemistry group that I live in, which had a lot of theoretical stuff and electroanalysis and nanoparticle research. 
uh, Dick and Electric Chemical Group that I kind of collaborated with a bit, did a lot of um, double electrodes, generator collector systems. So it's all under the umbrella of electrochemistry, but kind of slightly different areas within it. So it's like when you're doing your, like my undergrad, so there was organic, physical, and inorganic. And so I was like, all physical. And then in my master's, I was like, oh, electrochemistry. And then my PhD, I was like, oh, nanoparticles. So it kind of gets more and more specialized as you go on. And you know, I wasn't as aware of all the different nuances of electrochemistry. I just thought, oh, electrochemistry. That's okay. cool. So you basically kind of like pick a big-ish area that you're actually interested in, and then it's a case of what the university offers you in that area. Yeah, that has research groups in that. And I mean, different research groups will have different um, levels of, I don't want to say prestige, but I'm going to say prestige, like um, more well-known researchers, more publications. Do you want to be part of a really big research group or a small one? Um, stuff like that. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. So, like, uh, what? Because the way you said it, anyway, it sounded kind of like you applied for a PhD, got like accepted onto that on a topic area and group and stuff, and only at that point you actually applied for funding to do it. Were you kind of given any direction in terms of what things were likely to be get funding when you were doing that? Um, I think. My supervisor had a lot of experience of getting funding. He he directed me for where to go for it. So it's it's something to consider while you're applying because you can look. Maybe the university has scholarship. So um, in my college at Oxford, there's um, various scholarships for people who come from different places and of doing different research topics. There's the Lamb and Flag Scholarship, which was all the proceeds for a pub that we owned. I was going to um, say, I'm pretty sure that's a pub in Oxford. <laughs> yeah, the pub that my college owned. And all the profits from it goes towards graduate scholarships for people who couldn't get funding elsewhere and pays their fees and gives them a stipend. So. There's all there's funding in all sorts of places, and there's like websites within set up. I can't think of any the names of any, but you can search for them. That you can put in what research or what area of research you're doing and where, and it will pop up with different kind of funding sources you can apply for. Okay. But it's, I think I had it quite easy. The supervisor guided me, but you're kind of doing the two processes in parallel and. From people, from what other people have told me, it can be a bit of a nightmare. But I was fairly lucky with it. Yeah, I think the one thing that people I know who've done PhDs or postdocs or whatever it is, they all just complain about applying for funding all the time. They just say it's like the worst part of doing all of this kind of thing, apart from like writing their corrections when they're doing their final thing as well. I think those are the, those are the two big things that I've heard people uh, that are deeply unhappy about. Yeah, it's one of the reasons I left my postdoc. It's just like it's different postdocs have such short terms, like the contract's only a year or two at most, and then you've got to apply for more funding and you'd have to move around loads. And that's why one of the reasons why I left my postdoc. Okay. Um, so I guess kind of like moving away from the, the application side of things. So you've applied your PhD, you've got accepted, you've got funding, you arrive day one, starting my PhD, like, 
what do you do? <laughs> wow. Um, what did I do? So we have all your induction and all that, find all these safety talks. You arrive at the research group, and what you will start doing is literature reviews. So you'll talk to the supervisor, you'll write the group leader, you'll talk to the person within the group who's going to be looking after you. So there might be a postdoc or a third year PhD that's going to kind of day to day look after you. They'll tell you a bit about how the group works and all of that. And then you'll dive into the area of research you're going to do. So mine was to start with, I was doing um, coding up models for nanoparticle impacts on electrodes and measuring the currents you get when they get oxidized. And from that, you can see how many nanoparticles there are and how big they are by the size and frequency of the spikes. So my first week or so was just doing a huge literature review, looking at all of that, reading loads of papers, getting up to speed on the current state of affairs. And once you've done that, you'll start doing doing your research. So I started from coding up my program I was going to use, talking to the people who were doing the experiments. And then you just kind of slowly get into it. And on about day 12, you'll run into your first problem. And then have to fix that. And then, um, if, so if I can just pause you for a second, uh, I, I was amazed you got to, first of all, amazed you got to day 12 before there were any problems. That, that, that's, a, just a, that's a success in itself. But um, so just so I don't understand this, like the, the expectation would have been that you already know how to do literature review and you know how to code already. Is that about right? Um, yeah, most places would expect you to kind of be relatively comfortable with the literature review because you would have had to do them in your masters. I mean, people will be there to help you and use the university specific systems and stuff. So there's always third years around who you can go and annoy and say, help. Um, I knew how to do coding because I've done my masters in the same group, but obviously people from, so some people came from different groups who had done coding in different ways. They'd use different languages and stuff. In my group, we all use the same language with C++ so that we could use each other's code and that. And um, if that was the case, if you didn't know C++ yet, you could learn it fairly quickly. I mean, they, they expect you to either know it or to pick it up fast. Okay. Yeah. That's the, okay. So basically, if you were going into something which was like, you need to code stuff, you having a background in coding seems fairly vital yeah or okay. yeah, in the summer beforehand learning how to that's what it was my master's so my master was coding as well and i spent the summer before it just because i'd never coded before before my master's and i just kind of did some courses over summer and arrived knowing the basics okay yeah that, that makes sense so okay so you're you're kind of you've done your reading around uh, what's been done already and you're actually starting to get into the actual substance of your phd so you show up at work at uh from what i know our phd is about 10 o'clock well <laughs> depends on your research group we were half nine we had to be there um and you do different things on different days so i would spend some days just sat in front of my computer doing the coding 
sorting out coding problems going why is it giving me an infinite answer i can't figure it out um spent whole days doing that i spent some time in the actual lab i didn't do experiments my phd but i worked closely with people who did and like so they got experimental data i got computational data and we tried to sync it all up so i go and see what they were doing i was going what their results were looking like um you would do read more papers as they're coming out so my research group had every week one person would present a paper from like the last couple of months give a presentation about it and then we'd ask them questions about it to kind of just keep up to date with how all the research is going around the world so you do a bit of paper reading uh you would eventually once you've got enough data and you've kind of found something something interesting that might be publishable you'll write a paper which is a bit of a long slog so you get all your data together um put it into nice pretty graphs and nice formats as easy for your supervisor to understand go talk to them talk through all your results and they'll say okay good write this up into a paper so you'll do that and then they'll say that's rubbish do it again and you'll do it again <laughs> and um eventually send it off to a journal then it gets peer-reviewed by people and they might say no this is rubbish what are you doing they might say oh this is interesting but have you thought about just include this experiment to kind of confirm this bit or they might say, oh, just a few small corrections, and then we'll publish it. We'll do the corrections, send it back, and get it published, which is always fun. Are the um, peer reviewers as rude as I've heard that they are? <laughs> um, some were. Some were kind of ruthless. Some were quite nice. I did some peer reviewing in my PhD, and I was, I think I was way too nice because I was just so kind of new, and the older I got, the newer I got. As I was doing, depending on your experience, but um, yeah, some of them were just really, really mean. Um, okay, so to if, if I'm kind of hearing you correctly, it kind of sounds like a lot of PhDs is just basically you in a room, probably at a computer, kind of spending a lot of time working on your own. Is that kind of accurate? Um, well, yeah, it depends on the depends on the group. You know, a lot, a lot of my work I was doing independently, but just depending on the layout of your lab or depending on how much you collaborate. So we're in just a big room with loads of us. So people are always walking around, talking to each other, getting help, asking questions, etc. Um, obviously our wet lab was separate from the computer room, like the office. So where you did the actual experiments, um, you spent lots of people spend a lot of time in there. You spend like whole days in there. And if you're doing organic synthesis, you'd spend like, 24 hours straight and they're watching something uh, drop wise into someone else but there's always people around like you never unless you're there overnight you're not going to be just alone there's always people around just to talk to with a couple with and ask questions to and people come and ask you questions like especially once you get to about third year all the master students and the first year phds will be asking you oh what's this and can i show you my results and it's very very collaborative Oh, so like the the actual environment itself is 
like you spend a lot of time working with people but it would it be right to say that the actual kind of the research part of it you're basically was there someone else doing very similar things to you or is it like no i'm the one doing this um so with us there was for most of our good projects there was a theory person and an experiment experimental person so for one of mine for the nanoparticle impact i can't remember who's doing the experiment it might have been lynn and um i would talk to lynn most days about the experiment she was doing because we were doing the same research while working on the same problem just from that was the theory point of view she was the experimental point of view so we would work together quite a lot um she'd tell me what she was doing with the experiments and i'd tell her how the theory was going and lab like little mini meetings basically every day about it. Oh, okay yeah that makes sense um okay so how okay so two questions actually so how long were you funded to do your phd and how long did it actually take you uh oh how long was i funded i think i was funded to do three years it wasn't three and a half hmm. i think the funding was three years and if i wanted another year i would have to reapply but it was basically then not it through because most phds take like four years three and a half four years i did mine in well, i submitted my thesis who's nothing two years 11 months something like that so just shy of three years okay but then it took forever for the examiners to read it and for me to do my viver and all of that so by the time i'd done my viver exam i had already started my postdoc and was halfway through that. So most people, if they leave academia after the PhD, they'll be off doing a job. And a few months into their job, they'll have to take a day off, come back to uni, do their driver exam. Yeah. That takes all load of time. So yeah, I do mine in three years. If you include the time for the driver and to get it all confirmed, it was about three years, four months. Okay. Uh, that's that. Uh, I guess other people I've kind of talked to who have done VHDs have been like, I got funding for three three and a half four years in and been and sort of said it, it's taken a lot longer than that and they've basically ended up having doing two jobs at various points because they've had to get work once they finished their phd but they're still doing their phd alongside it yeah that's happened to several people that i've known like they've left they've like left the day-to-day lab they've got all their data they're still like writing their thesis while they're working in a real job or Sometimes they're still trying to do both, and it just sounds like a nightmare. I was, I was lucky that I got the data I needed and managed to write up. Also, I wrote up really quickly because um, I published loads of papers during the PhD, so I already had loads of it written. I just had to stitch it together and kind of make it flow, rather than just write it all from scratch, which was definitely helpful. Uh, so the actual out process only took about two weeks for me, which was a lot less than some people. So that sounds almost like some like advice for somebody doing a PhD that you should be writing it up as you go along. Even. Yeah, I would say do that, write up as you go along, and keep keep a decent lab book. Don't don't do what I do and have just like a messy scroll of what you're doing when. Like every time you do something, have a note of it, write it down what you've done when. Um, especially if you're doing experimental stuff, people will take you through how to do that, how to keep decent records. When people do explain that, listen to them and do it. <laughs> so 
it's almost like some teacher levels of frustration coming through yeah. there. Well, and because I didn't properly, and it made things hard later on. But because I was theoretical, it kind of didn't matter as much. If you're doing experiments, then there's a safety requirement to do your lab work properly, and then it also really helps you out later. So, okay, to kind of get at the kind of the day-to-day -day side of things, although like different days are you know you're doing different things sometimes you might be in a lab sometimes you might be in a computer you kind of is it quite repetitive do you end up doing kind of a lot of the same things most days or does it change quite a lot as you go through um i think it was relatively repetitive so there was always a there's always a cycle of idea do the coding get data talk to supervisor Supervisor says either that's terrible or that's brilliant, often depending on his mood. And then either you tweak it and then go back to him or move on to another thing. So it's like, it's always be a cycle of, yeah, idea, execute it, get data, analyze results, idea, execute it, get data, analyze results. So just that cycle going on for like three years. And obviously different parts of that cycle have different things. So when you get your idea, you'll do a lot of reading. That might take a few days. A few days, a few weeks to uh, execute it and do the research. day or two to analyze it and then go talk to your supervisor and just that kind of few week cycle happening again and again and again. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Okay. And then the further you get in, so when, by the time I got to like third year and postdoc, around all that, I was supervising kind of... Um, master students and third year PhD students as well. So the higher up you get, the more kind of responsibility you get in the group. You'll be looking after people. Um, your supervisor might send you um, papers to review. You might go off on conferences, which I did quite a lot, which was fun. And um, yeah, so the higher up you get, the more um, responsibility and the more other things you'll have to do on top of that for that core cycle. So this keeps going through. Okay, so uh, since you mentioned it, uh, from the very limited anecdotal evidence I've heard, conferences sound like a massive party. Is that true? <laughs> uh, I couldn't possibly say. Um, there is a lot of um, networking, let's call it that. And um, each conference will start and end usually with some kind of event with drinks going on. And they're in lots of interesting places. So you get to go explore new cities and new countries, which is fun. Like I went to Sweden a couple of times and Romania and South Africa. But yeah, you do do a lot of uh, networking, I got to call it. That's a very diplomatic way of phrasing. Yes, okay. <laughs> also, you get ones to go there. So the travel and the hotels and quite often the food and the networking you can claim that for the university or they just pay for it outright at the start. So. It's always good to know what your 9,000 a year of tuition fees are paying for. <laughs> yep. <laughs> okay. Um, so uh, kind of looking back at doing your PhD, what thing did you not know going into it would you have found really useful to have known? Um, oh, I not know. I think the thing I would have really liked 
to have known is how often everything's going to go wrong and how often people are going to say, no, that's rubbish. What are you doing? And that that's okay. You're allowed to have bad ideas and have experiments not work. So if I'd known at the start that that was going to be the case, I would have saved a lot of stress, I think. So, oh, so you kind of went into it expecting that like after all of these years of study i shouldn't be getting all of this stuff wrong kind of yeah i should know how to do things but there's always people who know more than you how to do it and as you go through the years you kind of get the intuition of how it all works and it gets easier but yeah at the beginning it's just like nothing's happening i've got six months without getting any data what's going on but that's fine and that's like normal Okay. Yeah. Uh, so I sort of reminds me of, uh, with all of the kind of A-level students where they do like a week long project and it all goes wrong the whole time. And at the end I tell them really well done. And they're like, why? I didn't achieve anything. I was just like, so you want, you only had a week. Of course you're not going to achieve anything. Um, so then there's, um, the transfer driver as well that you probably do at the end of first year, which was very stressful. And I wish someone had told me more about that. So at the end of your first year, you've got to like present what you've done so far to some people at the uni so that you can progress. Cause I think in the first year I was officially a probationary research student, like technically. And then after that you become a PhD, like a full on PhD student once you pass your transfer viva. Is, is that purely about kind of your, your competence as a researcher or is it at that point, they can evaluate that actually your PhD is not going anywhere and they're just going to can it and not waste research money. I think if, if that were the case, they would, if that were the case, they would um, just push you in a different direction. Any supervisor would push you in a different direction. Um, so I think it's mostly to check that you kind of know what you're doing, really. Of, my whole time I was there doing my PhD, I only had one person who failed their transfers either. And they got another chance to do it. I think by that point they decided they were going to leave anyway. Okay. So it's it's a thing that for most people it's absolutely fine uh, as long as they've been doing what they're supposed to. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. As long as, you, as long as you know what you're doing and you kind of listen to people, then it's fine. I, I, I guess this is probably something that phd programs wouldn't want you to know but like do you have to finish it or like you know i mean I, I assume you're strongly encouraged to but let's let you know like you get like a year and a half in two years in and you're like this is rubbish like <laughs> would there be like financial consequences if you bailed out or is it just a case like um, leaving a normal job i don't think so i don't think there would be any consequences of bailing out i don't know anyone who did leave <laughs> halfway through except for like after the first year um but by the time you've got to year and a half three years in you might as well just finish and get the phd i would say just like yeah. suck it up and finish it and i guess there would be nothing to stop somebody else just basically picking up what because as long as the university's got all your data and codes and stuff in theory i guess someone could just pick it up and finish it off if they really wanted to yeah they could do so that happens a lot anyway so all my all of my data, all of my code was left there and somebody carried on the project after I left. So a project's never like 100% totally finished. There's always more you can do. So other people are now doing that. 
which, which has actually flagged up a question that I was planning to ask and I forgot about is, uh, do you own the stuff that you research when you were doing no. a PhD? Yeah, the university owns it still. Yeah, owns it. Yeah. Because yeah. um, I remember that that I remember signing a form when I started university, basically being like, anything you discover while you're a student here, like we own it. And I was like, well, yeah, I, okay, so that doesn't change even with a PhD. Yeah, it's, it's not yours. It's the university's. Is that the same postdoc as well? Do they still own everything? Yeah, I think so. So that's where you happen to be researching because you're using all their, their labs, their resources, their money. Um, yeah, they own it. Because I know that, or at least I have some knowledge that basically people kind of find something, so they start their own company and apply for research funding because they think they've discovered something quite big. Um, uh, certainly with all the coronavirus stuff at the moment, there's this place in South Southampton which is turned itself into a company because they've I, I, I need to read more about it but they've, they've basically discovered something fairly significant and apparently that company's shares are going through the roof at the moment yeah, yeah. Um, yeah Oxford had loads of spin-out companies there was something called Foxtop which my supervisor was involved with so the kind of research we did electrochemical sensing was really good for uh, detecting like cannabis levels in the blood of saliva and they were developing like a roadside um are you smoking weed and driving detector which i'm not sure how much of a market there is for that but they were doing it yeah, probably more um, so in america from what uh, i've seen and heard well maybe and um the chili center which they're always going on about which my group developed where they um just put the idea is eventually you'll put a little probe in some food they'll tell you exactly how spicy it's going to be because at the moment they use the scoville scale which is very subjective and is based on people diluting bones and testing until they can't taste it anymore or can't taste the chili anymore which is obviously subjective but my group developed this sensor which measures the capsaicin which is the molecule that causes it to be spicy and tells you exactly how much of that there is and how spicy it's going to be. And they always get that out for A-level demonstrations and things and kids <laughs> cut up chilies and do the testing. I'm just, I'm in two minds. I'm, I'm both, that sounds really cool. And I'm sure the chemistry of that is amazing, but I'm also about like, what's the point? <laughs> <laughs> um, there was a point, like for the restaurant and catering industry or something to help standardize was, uh, was what they went with at the point. <laughs> Um, okay, so is there anything else that we haven't talked about that somebody should know about doing a PhD in chemistry? Um, oh. I guess kind of more general than with chemistry is doing a PhD, you get loads of just the social aspect is really fun. So it's basically another three years at uni. Yeah, you get to have the uni lifestyle for a bit longer, which was good. Um, but be ready for long nights for very long money and lots of stress. But yeah, I think it's worth it to get the PhD. Like I was never, well, I was a little bit of a start, like in academia, let's do research for research's sake, which was nice. And I liked the research and I hated the admin faff of it when I did my postdoc, like all the funding. So that sucked. 
someone else I would say is try to get some teaching experience while you're doing your PhD. So if that's just junior demonstrating in labs or doing seminars or tutorials, try and get some of that because I really enjoyed that. And it really helps your core subject knowledge as well for then when you're applying for jobs later. If you want to stay in academia, it'll be a really useful thing to have as well. Uh, well, I, from my brief interactions with uh, lecturers and stuff at university, I always got the impression that they didn't like the teaching part of it and would rather not do it. But I guess that's not the case for all of them. Um, yeah, not all of them. I really enjoyed the teaching part. That's why I left. One of the reasons why I left academia and became a teacher is because I loved being a tutor. So I was a tutor at my college because my my teacher, the proper tutor of the college was my supervisor. And he didn't want to do the tutoring, so I did it, which was good. Got paid. And then in my postdoc, I got like my own tutoring post at Lady Margaret Hall, and that was really fun. And the research was less fun, so well, let's go be a teacher. And that segues into a whole other thing about being a teacher, but I feel like that's a thing for another day. Okay, so that brings us to the end of this podcast. I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode. Do tune in again for future ones.